0: Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatran Mall. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Joyeta Sarkar about her new book, Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War, which was published by Cornell University Press in July 2022. Professor Sarkar is currently Associate Professor of Economic and Social History at the University of Glasgow, prior to which she was an Assistant Professor at Boston University. So welcome to the podcast today, Joyita.
1: Thank you very much, Shachun Jai.
0: Thank you for joining us today. It's great to speak with you. Um, our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up and how did you become a historian of modern South Asia?
1: Uh, Yeah, thank you again, Shatrinja. It is a delight to be on the podcast. Um, I was born and raised in Calcutta, India, where I spent the first two decades of my life. After that, I moved around quite a bit, uh, first to France, um, then several years in Switzerland, followed by almost a decade in northeastern United States, and uh, now I'm in Scotland uh, in the UK. And uh, for your listeners, uh, you know, Calcutta in India um, uh, today is known as Kolkata. It was officially renamed at the turn of uh, the 21st century. And uh, how did I become a historian of modern South Asia? Um, You know, um, as a child, I was um, fascinated by the past, uh, but I was not as interested in history as a subject taught in school, I know it's strange uh, to, to think that and, and to, to remember the past. Um, I, it had to do with how it was taught and what was taught. Um, there was very little contemporary and modern history in our textbooks, uh, very little global transnational frameworks of analysis. And so there was a lot about ancient civilizations, Harappa and Maenjadaro, the Mughal Empire, British colonialism, um, and the moment of independence of August 1947. And after that, there was no more history. <laughs> it was politics and political science. Um, so once I realized um, that textbook history and history as a discipline are different, two different universes altogether, there was no looking back for me. Um, so I, I received my PhD in history uh, from the Graduate Institute Geneva in Switzerland, uh, which is well known for its strength in um, modern contemporary international history. Um, after all, the Institute was you know, founded to develop expertise for the League of Nations, which is the predecessor of the United Nations today. And before my PhD, I obtained a, a master's in sociology from the University of Paris-Sorbonne And I think I'd go so far as to say that the experience of studying in continental Europe had a a distinct influence on how I thought about the modern world and um, how I went about writing this book.
0: Thank you. Uh, I'm sure many, many of us who grew up in India would relate to what you said about how after 1947, the history of India after 1947 is really not taught in textbooks and how that's something that sort of a lot of us are curious about. So so thank you for sharing that. I would now like to turn towards talking about your new book, uh, which is a deeply fascinating study of India's nuclear program. Uh, So the title of your book references plowshares and swords. Could you tell us a little bit more about this title? Um, And the second part of this question is how did you come to write this book and what do you see as its major arguments and contributions?
1: Yeah my my book Plowshares and uh, Swords is is really a global story of um India's nuclear program uh during its first 40 years so from the mid 1940s until the mid 1980s and the the title uh is really uh, you know I use swords and plowshares essentially uh metaphors for nuclear weapons and nuclear energy respectively um and i do that to capture the the this dual characteristics of india's nuclear program now the, these these metaphors ploughshares and swords swords and ploughshares uh, depict the the distinction or the dichotomy between peace and war mm-hmm. and My argument is that there was no dichotomy between weapons of war and weapons of peace um, in the context of uh, India's nuclear program, and that those were entangled um, by design from the onset. Um, So the use of these metaphors, you know, swords and plowshares is really not new. They're derived from this biblical verse, you know, they shall beat Their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and indicating the possibility of a world without war, right? Something that we can definitely um, understand. I think resonates with us today in the present moment uh, in the context of Ukraine. Um, interestingly, um, this, the Soviet government back in the late 1950s uh, gifted a bronze sculpture uh, to the United Nations, and it still stands there today um, in, in in the UN uh, in New York. Um, and it was called "Let them beat their swords into plowshares," and it shows this the sculpture of a, a man with a hammer beating a sword into a plowshare. Um, in the 1970s, though, uh, U.S. defense intellectuals, such as um, Albert Waldstatter and others, uh, used, once again, these metaphors of swords and plowshares in the context of nuclear weapons, uh, in the context of nuclear proliferation, which is a, a, a conceptual term that political scientists use to describe development of nuclear weapons by countries. Now, your second question um, was, you know, well, how did I come to write this book and the arguments? Now, the title, which I just explained, I think can be better uh, can be further explained through tr- uh, significance, uh, especially uh, uh, underlined through the arguments. Now, the title and the arguments uh, challenge the received wisdom about India's nuclear program. Now, what is this received wisdom? Uh, this received wisdom divides India's nuclear program into peaceful and military phases. So, um, the conventional wisdom goes that the peaceful phase Uh, began in 1947 with independence, and it lasted until the 1980s, and the so-called weaponization phase, I would, you know, I have it in my book within quotes, um, weaponization phase said to have begun in the 1980s in response to Pakistan's nuclear weapons program and consolidated after the nuclear tests of May 1998. Now, what this received wisdom has done is that it has has really, uh, it has led to this a false understanding that the formative years of India's nuclear program is essentially a prehistory of the nuclear weapons project so what i do in my book is that i challenge this i challenge this received wisdom by showing how the choices made during the 1940s until the 1980s uh, were, were were really um, were really pivotal uh, for what followed in the late 80s and the late 90s and so um, I make three arguments, which I'll explain very briefly, and perhaps you know, in the rest of the conversation, uh, we can uh, gradually uh, discuss them further. So the first argument is that India's nuclear program was a dual-use endeavor, simultaneously serving civilian and military ends, not because of the nature of nuclear technologies, but owing to deliberate plans and decisions undertaken by the Atomic Energy Commission of India, later on, the Department of Atomic Energy or the DAE. In other words, um, I argue that the, the it's not an energy program that developed into a weapons program over time, but that was conceived as both from the onset. So my book is not a story of plowshares two swords, but it is a story of plowshares and swords uh, entangled uh, because it was intended as such. Um, and so what I what I find is that the, the program's dual use characteristics was manifest in the kinds of technologies the leaders of India's nuclear program were procuring, the infrastructure that they were building, the kind of training that they were uh, they were trying to get, and they were often receiving. And above all, all of this was undertaken through foreign partnerships um, on both sides of the uh, the Cold War divide, but, but to an extent a bit more from the West. Um, and not just the United States, but also uh, continental Europe, notably France. The second argument is that um, India's... Uh, a space program, which was very closely related to the nuclear program, was also dual use. And this was done to keep the nuclear program uh, in, in a way that the nuclear program was kept separate from the space program. And the leaders did that uh, by leaders. I mean, both the political leaders who took a very keen interest in these two important programs and also scientific institution builders like Homi Pava, like Vikram Sarabhai. Um, And so we find I find that um, they did so in this in the sense, they developed and nurtured a dual use space program to benefit from foreign cooperation in outer space without arousing the suspicion of the nonproliferation regime. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the same individuals and groups were uh, leading both programs, Um, for example, Homi Bhava was in charge of nuclear and space. Um, Sarabhai was managing space under Homi Bhava until he became uh, the chairman and then he created ISRO as separate. But there were always these very clear overlaps in with respect to the space and the nuclear programs. So as a result of that, I find that Indian scientists and engineers were able to master know-how for missiles and, and uh, you know, through rockets and satellite launch vehicles. And at the same time, they're working on underground nuclear explosions. Now, what that did is that from the perspective of the global nonproliferation regime, often led by U.S. policymakers, whether they are deciding what to do about India's nuclear program in Washington, D.C. or in Vienna at the IAEA, is that their, their expectation was, 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 was a linear one. That is, a country will develop nuclear weapons through first conducting a nuclear test, and then they will develop delivery vehicles, because that was what the United States had done and the, and the Soviet Union had done. Um, but in the Indian context, um, in throughout the Cold War, that was non-linear. And that is the development of nuclear devices and delivery vehicles were concurrent and parallel mm-hmm. uh, and not sequential. Uh, my third and final argument um, is about uh, borders uh, and, uh, and, and the significance of uh, borderlands. And I argue that um, India's nuclear programs, you know, geopolitical dimensions become very clear when we pay attention to the intermestic characteristic of the territorial threats. So uh, uh, I, I, I take this um, I take this framework called intermestic from mm-hmm. historians, Frederick Logueval and Campbell Craig, uh, meaning the interface between national and the domestic. And I argue in the book and then I show uh, in various chapters that said so that to the Indian to the postcolonial Indian nation states securing borderlands mattered just as much as protecting borders itself and so we need to pay attention to uh, to, to, to this very interesting uh, uh, very very interesting uh, dynamic of the fluidity of internal external domestic international inside outside uh, to make sense of what would geopolitical threats meant in the Indian context. so not just look at wars like 47. 65, 71, but also the, the, the uncertainty and insecurity with instances like Sikkim, uh, instances like um, uh, the d- different uh, secessionist movements in the Northeast, Naxalite movement in West Bengal, all of those influenced what geopolitical insecurities meant. To New Delhi and not just wars. Uh, And the reason is, you know, this bring the readers back to the received wisdom that I started out with is that the received wisdom claims that the first 40 years of India's nuclear program were peaceful. And as a result, the key motivations were prestige and and or domestic politics. So I argue that neither was the case. Uh, Leaders of India's nuclear program are pursuing both from the onset, and that geopolitics was also a key motivation, not only, but also. I'm going to stop there <laughs> and um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to wait for you to ask for questions. And I'm sorry to 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 get into um, all the details of my argument at once. Uh,
0: no worries. No, thank you so much. Uh, I, I think that you, uh, you've, you've elaborated sort of the significance of your book and the key stakes of your book um, in great detail. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, and I'll ask you further questions later about um, uh, so ab- about some of the specific specific arguments that you discuss about and some of the specific themes that you mentioned. So before delving more deeply into your book, I had a question about your research for this book. So where did you do your research and what sorts of archives and sources did you use?
1: Uh yeah, that's that's a really important question. Uh, so um this book began as my PhD, my my my, my doctoral dissertation back in twenty ten. And so I would say that I've done about uh, ten years or so, uh, maybe nine and a half years of archival research. And um when I started off this project back in twenty ten, I would say there was there was very little on India's nuclear program in terms of declassified archival documents. Um and um over time, things improved. But um, there were several instances where archives were available several years after the dissertation. Um, But that meant that I had the opportunity to incorporate those documents, because I I spend more time uh, reflecting um, from the dissertation to the book. But it also meant that I had to do a lot of new research, a lot of uh, new writing, and in some cases, you know, new reconceptualization. Um, So I've done research uh, in about, I think, uh, six countries mm-hmm. uh, and sixteen on-site archives. And the reason was that there was very little on India's nuclear program in India, and uh, and and because I wanted to tell a global story, I I wanted to bring in documents from uh, from France, from from the UK, from Canada, from US, also international organizations like the IAEA mm-hmm. in Vienna. Um, and obviously, the Indian archives were extremely important, the National Archives of India, which declassified a lot of uh, important and interesting documents uh, from the Ministry of External Affairs files, the Nehru Memorial was excellent, uh, TIFR archives, the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, um, the Saha Institute of Nuclear Physics well, it was also quite helpful mm-hmm. in, uh, in, 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 uh, in my hometown uh, of Calcutta. Um, So all in all, I would say um, I I did uh, multi-archival, multilingual, on-site research in in several countries, and I also incorporate a lot of digitized archives Mm -hmm. from the Wilson Center Digital Archive and the British Library's Endangered Archives Program. I think the the, the story about Sikkim could have not been told without the Sikkim Palace Archives, uh, which are digitized at the British Library. Um, but, yes, that meant uh, a lot of uh, a lot of archival work. Um, now, I want to share, you know, my my uh, uh, my motivation in in terms of, you know, why not? Why did I not do um, interviews? And I, I did not want to write a book about India's nuclear program based on interviews because a lot of that had already been done. And and those, those those are excellent books by you know people like George Parkovich um, and and Chengapa and there and also Robert Anderson and they were excellent books, but they were written a lot of them at a time when uh, we did not have enough archival documents, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of that meant that we had to take what the interviewee was telling us uh, on face value, and um, I wanted to make sure I was uh, I was really getting into uh, what the documents had to say, but also not take that on face value. So go to multiple archives to make sure that I can um, I I can triangulate to the extent possible. And so it took me a lot of time, uh, but I wanted to uh, avoid writing the history of India's nuclear program based on interviews, because there were excellent books done already at a time documents were not available
0: thank you so the the nuclear age uh, began at the eve of India's independence you talk about this I think um, in your in, in the early part of your book about like the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki happening just two years before India's independence um and your book frames modern India's history within this context of the nuclear age and the global cold War um, and what something that I found very interesting was that the origins of India's nuclear program precede formal decolonization um so you've already mentioned this book briefly but could you tell us about the conception of india's nuclear program and some of the individuals and organizations involved with conceiving it
1: yeah yeah i i i love that that you know uh, you found that uh, in, in intriguing and I, I think it's really important uh, for uh, for us scholars uh, who are studying post colonial india and also the readers to understand that uh, there was something very distinct about about India's nuclear program and specifically about the role of science mm-hmm. in in future India that, that that which influenced how India's nuclear program was per, perceived by um, uh, by the leaders future leaders and um, in terms of that I find that you know in order to make sense of India's nuclear program we really ought to go back in time, not 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 too far, um, but at least in the Second World War. And um, institutionally, I find that the roots of India's nuclear program can be traced to CSIR, or the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research, um, which was formed during the Second World War by the Colonial the British colonial government, and it was modeled on the British uh, Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. Uh, So the the individual here is S.S. uh, SS Bhatnagar, uh, who played a very important role uh, in terms of the the organization of atomic energy um, in soon-to-be independent India and then then recently independent India. Um, One of the Things that, you know, really stands out. And here I would like to, you know, draw your attention and also uh, attention of the listeners to uh, this excellent book uh, published a few years ago. It definitely helped, uh, you know, made, helped me to think through these, uh, this, 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 this time period is the book called *Atomic State* by janavi Falke. and uh, she she really does this terrific job and fully really inspired a lot of my own thinking on this topic about uh, the transnational networks of scientists mm-hmm. um, and what that meant for soon to be independent India. Um, so. Uh, the the CSIR or the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research established the Atomic Energy Research Committee uh, just a year before India's independence in 1946, and um, it was the first step towards organization of nuclear fission research in India. It was the first meeting that was held in uh, in May. 1946, uh, and interestingly, in, um, in, in in Bombay House, the headquarters of the Tata Industries, and uh, Homi Bhava, who by then has become the founding director of the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, that story begins in 1944. As you can tell, the Second World War is still very much on in 1944. Uh, so Homi Bhabha, by then, was already the founding director of TIFR, uh, and he was also related to the Tata family himself. He chaired the meeting, and um, from what do we know that uh, uh, that at the meeting of the board of atomic energy research there was. Homi Bhava, who was chairing the meeting, uh, but the chairman of Tata, son, JRD Tata, was also present. And obviously, the influence of the Tatas cannot be ignored by the fact that it was at Bombay House that the first meeting was taking taking place.
0: Thank you. That's really fascinating to hear about all of these individuals, um, all of these scientists, this transnational network of scientists who are involved in crafting India's nuclear program, the early stage of India's nuclear program, and also the role of the Tata's, uh, which uh, recent books, um, like I think Mircha Ryan's book about the Tata's shows how closely connected they were with, um, you know, nation building. So that, that's really fascinating to hear about the Tata's close connection with the origins of uh, India's nuclear program.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, sorry to interrupt. I, I will say that I have learned a lot from the book that just came out by Misha Ryanu. He and I have been in touch before his book was out to discuss, you know, the role of Tata's in, uh, in nuclear fission in terms of what he calls in this uh, thing is chapter three of his books, uh, strategic philanthropy. And I think it it's what I found in my work. It it really it made a lot of sense it clearly uh, resonated with what, what i saw in terms of my own research about the role of the Tatars in india's nuclear um project
0: thank you so post colonial india's relationship with imperial france was a crucial part of the early stage of india's nuclear program uh, amidst efforts to secure raw materials for nuclear energy so could you tell us a little more about this and about how indian governmental and scientific uh, agencies navigated this embryonic stage of the nuclear program in like the late 1940s and 1950s?
1: Certainly. Um, when I started, and I'll, I'll go a little back, uh, a back, I mean, take a step back from the book. Uh, when I started this research, um, and as I said at the beginning of this interview, that uh, studying in continental Europe had... Uh, had an influence on how uh, this book was written, and that is to say that my my dissertation uh, was focusing essentially on on the French story of India's nuclear program, which I felt was largely ignored. Uh, growing up in India, I never heard about it, mm-hmm. and so um, I was very interested and, and intrigued by it, and you know, be studying in French-speaking Switzerland. um, Having moved there from Paris, uh, I've I felt that you know I do have the language skills to to bring that story um, to the Mm -hmm. world. Uh, So the French angle um, was very important at the dissertation stage, but I would say became far less important at the book level uh, because I found that the French are really interesting and important, but only to a certain extent. And which brings me to your question about the role of France in India's nuclear program. I think the role of France was really important in the early years, and which is also your question, is this embryonic stage of the nuclear program. And it had to do with the fact that um, it's interesting to think about, but it has to do with the fact that India and, uh, and France, our post-war France and post-colonial India, were experiencing similar obstruction mm-hmm. in terms of their their pursuit of nuclear fission projects—that is, their national nuclear programs—from uh, uh, from from the Anglo-American information censorship um, uh, regime that were, that had emerged during the Second World War and also existed in the in the post-war years. And so, because France, as a country, did not participate in the manhattan project because it was occupied during the war uh, but at the same time it had um, it it had the scientific personnel um that were that were individually involved uh, people like Bertrand goldschmidt and others who who emerge in my book uh, several times like they're they're, they're goldschmidt is present all the way until the 1980s in the book because he's important uh, for india's nuclear program uh, but i i find that in the early years India and France experienced a a similar obstruction from the Anglo-American information censorship in terms of access to raw materials like uranium uh, or thorium Uh, in terms of censorship, as I said. So uh, French physicists and chemists, when they returned back to France after participating in the Manhattan Project. There were five French uh, scientists who did. Uh, They still had wartime pledges of secrecy, uh, so they couldn't fully contribute to their own nuclear programs. Uh, And the other thing was, you know, France, just uh, similar to India, had had a dual-use nuclear Mm -hmm. program. And so uh, the the French government initially said it was peaceful and then um, said they're developing weapons after Um, After Indochina, the the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. But in the early years, we find both nuclear programs have similar aspirations, and they're also being um, being um, obstructed by by the same set of state actors. And I think that that really helped in, in in the two sides coming together.
0: Thank you. That was really fascinating because like you, I had very little idea growing up about the role of France in uh, India's nuclear program. It was really fascinating to read about this um, in your book and about the close cooperation or or close connection between uh, France and India and how France felt sort of excluded from the Anglo-American sphere as far as the nuclear program uh, was concerned. You begin the third chapter uh, by referencing U.S. President Eisenhower's famous Atoms for Peace speech in which he advocated a peaceful use um, of nuclear energy. Uh, so as the Cold War heated up in the 1950s and early 1960s, how did the Indian state navigate the, these Cold War tensions and the superpower rivalry between the U.S. and the Soviet Union as it pursued its own nuclear program?
1: Yeah, um, the, the third chapter, uh, you know, is is really an examination of how. India's nuclear program expanded um, in response to uh, the Eisenhower administration's um, "Atoms for Peace" speech and all the all the institutional outcomes that followed. And by that I mean the the creation of the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna. Um, so. In 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 response to your earlier question about France, I had said that um, India and France, as this uh, post-colonial India, post-war France, experienced you know very similar situation in terms of the the world, the, the post-war world that they th- that they encountered, uh, in terms of things being closed, as an access to strategic materials relevant for fission being uh, closed mm-hmm. because of. Uh, Anglo-American stockpiling efforts, and then censorship. All of that changes with Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace, which is a speech, but then that's followed by uh, institutional outcomes. And that is, all of a sudden, uh, the U.S. government um, decides to op- open, up, uh, uh, open up the marketplace. And so the third chapter, I call it the nuclear marketplace opens for business, and essentially what that meant for India's nuclear program. That is finally uh, India's, uh, India's uh, uh, leaders, both Jawaharlal Nehru, who took a very keen interest in the nuclear program, and Homi Pava, who was then, uh, you know, he's considered father of India's nuclear program. He was the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, and then he becomes secretary of the Department of Atomic Energy. So I find that India's nuclear program overnight radically expands and and at the same time we have the Atoms for peace and the iaea's negotiation of the statute that takes place from 54 to 57 and obviously uh, it's not obvious to a lot of scholars who you know who probably don't uh, pay attention to india's post colonial uh, indian foreign policy what uh, you know nehru was doing at many of these international organizations but uh, from for those of us who have been who pay attention we find that uh and Nehru is in Bandung at this mm-hmm. moment of you know Afro Asian solidarity, and we have Homi Pava in uh, this, this time in Geneva at the first uh, UN conference in peaceful use of atomic energy. He's he's chairing the session uh, because he is a representative of an online country. Um So what I find it's fascinating that uh, the Cold War divide per se that you said doesn't really um hamper India's nuclear program per se, but rather it is actually uh, actually helpful. It, it, it facilitates because India can finally enter the marketplace because of Atoms for Peace as a non-aligned country and is able to uh, procure technology technologies from whoever is willing to offer. Um, so that's what I find happens with Atoms for Peace and thereafter.
0: Thank you. That's really interesting to hear about how suddenly like the the nuclear marketplace opened up for um, India and like maybe non-aligned countries in the 1950s with um, Eisenhower's speech and sort of the institutional policies that were pursued at that time. Um, So something else that you also talk about is how India's policies towards its nuclear and space programs were shaped by its difficult relationship with the People's Republic of China from the late 1950s through the 1970s. So could you tell us how the vicissitudes of Sino-Indian relations, such as the Sino-Indian War of 1962 uh, and China's nuclear tests during the 1960s impacted the development of India's nuclear program?
1: Yeah, um, I find that uh, that Indian policymakers and those scientists who were close to um Close to policymakers, thinking about Homi Pava, thinking about Sarabhai um, and others. I, I find that they they are they they were very concerned about China from a very long time, and uh, in terms of you know um it's it's hard to find the moment when it begins. I would say you know the it's the uh, nineteen fifty perhaps, um, the Chinese uh, when the PLA entered Tibet, uh, but in terms of your specific question, you know, it's not about Indian foreign policy. It's about exactly the nuclear and space programs. Um, I find that, you know, um, the the Indian Atomic Energy Act of 1962 uh, is really, is an important piece of legislation. And uh, scholars who are interested, not just in the nuclear program, but also um, Indian geopolitics, India's perception of, you know, what's happening with respect to China, we need to pay more attention to, this act, because um, this act replaced the 1948 Indian Atomic Energy Act. And uh, unlike, uh, so so what the 1962 Atomic Energy Act does is that it's just, uh, it's passed very quickly uh, in the Indian Parliament. And if you look at it, you'll find that, you know, it's, it's this It's it's it allows secrecy, it allows taking over territory, uh, it allows, you know, it's basically an as anti-democratic as one could get Mm -hmm. um, while becoming or calling itself a a piece of legislation passed within, passed in the parliament of the largest democracy in the world. Um, And I and I I argue in my book that uh, it's really important to pay attention to this legislation and what followed thereafter. So there were certain techno-political choices made by um, the leaders of India's nuclear program thereafter in terms of plutonium reprocessing plant, which began a little bit before, uh, certain various kinds of power reactors that would allow plutonium stockpiling, um, space projects, uh, which I started our interview with. Uh, so I find that that what Indian policymakers and those close to uh, policy while being scientists began to adopt this uh, this policy of hyper diversification mm-hmm. that they were going to get various kinds of technologies to meet various kinds of uh, various kinds of uh, uh, technopolitical projects that would serve uh, military and civilian goals at the same time. and a lot of that had to do with what's happening with China. but interestingly, uh, the act is, you know, just a few months before the actual war of October 1962. But anybody who has read the history of the war knows that those tensions did not begin in October 62. Mm-hmm. They they were uh, they, they preceded um, the war itself, which brings me to my one of my, you know, my arguments about intermestic. We need to pay attention to intermestic characteristics of geopolitical threats. Um, so to answer your question, um, how did uh, Sino-Indian tensions influence India's nuclear and space programs? I would say that, that it, it is really influential. Uh, I think we, we really need to pay attention to the history of that relationship to make sense of What's what happened with respect to those choices uh, in terms of the nuclear and space program? Because after uh, the first Chinese nuclear test, which took place in October 1964, there was this major debate um, within the Congress Party that India should get nuclear weapons. And at the time, Indian Prime Minister Lal Bahadur Shastri said, "No way." Um, and then there was uh, there was another debate in the Parliament, which I I, I discuss in my book, and it is. In this debate that we find that he says no, but then he also allows Homi Bhava to undertake underground nuclear explosions, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, the nuclear explosions project that uh, that uh, makes the know-how available to Indian scientists to undertake the peaceful nuclear explosion that they do. They call it peaceful in May 1974. So we see that India's, India's nuclear explosion uh, project Emerged as a response to Chinese nuclear weapons tests, and the Chinese don't stop there. They conduct several nuclear tests. There's a 65 war with Pakistan. Um, there is a hydrogen bomb test uh, in 1967. The same year, there are skirmishes between the Indian army and the PLA in Sikkim, um, which I, I discuss uh, a lot in the book because I want I wanted my readers to pay more attention to. These small skirmishes, because I want uh, the readers and even just scholars and students to, uh, to take into account the intramestic characteristics of territorial threats, because they do have um, important effects on, on choices the, in, the Indian leaders made.
0: Thank you. Yes, I think this section of your book just reminds us how important it is to study Sino-Indian connections or Sino-Indian relations and how uh, the threat of um, China, the perceived threat of China, real or perceived, however we want to sp- speak about it, like how that um, influenced uh, India's, um, you know, nuclear program, space program and um, so on. So, so that, that that was very interesting. So the 1970s were a turbulent era for South Asia. Uh, could you tell us about some of the major historical events of this period and how they influenced India's nuclear program?
1: Yeah. Um, so in in the in, in the 1970s, you know, it's, I I discussed this uh, in this in chapter six of my book called Fractured Worlds, and um, I. It's it's called as such because it's just uh, it's just as an unraveling of sorts. And uh, there is obviously the war uh, that uh, that led to the creation of Bangladesh. Uh, but there are also there, there are also various kinds of um, uh, issues, you know, within uh, w- within the in the, the territorial Indian nation state, uh, not, not to mention. That uh, that you know, Indira Gandhi uh, is experiencing various you know various kinds of challenges within the the party itself, uh, and then you know she she consolidated her um her 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 leadership and at 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 high cost as to what that meant for Indian democracy. And this is prior to the emergency. Um, so the, the the 1970s, in terms of the nuclear program specifically, I think the 1971. War is quite important, not just the war itself or the outcome of a a new sovereign nation state, but the but the fact that the war was so short uh, that it was a 13 day war and it was kept short essentially to prevent, you know, in any in any further spillover that could challenge. Quote unquote the territorial integrity of the nations of the Indian nation states. Mm-hmm. So what would what would it mean if it if it spilled over um, into uh, West Bengal that was already taking a lot of refugees? Uh, what would that mean for the Naxalite program, which was anti state? Uh, what would that mean for the calls for greater autonomy by the Chogyal of Sikkim, uh, which you know th- that tension has been going on since the since the 1960s? Um, and then what, what would that uh, what would an ongoing war uh, over East Pakistan slash Bangladesh mean for India's northeast, right? Uh, And so those tensions really come to a head uh, in the 1970s, and and I explore that in the sixth chapter of my book. Um, Outside um, outside India, I find that, you know, uh, um, that India's, Reputation as this leader of the non-aligned movement uh, is, is no longer sustainable mm-hmm. in the 1970s, um, not to mention uh, the, the oil crisis. So I find that the, the oil crisis, on the one hand, definitely affected India without question, mm-hmm. although Prime Minister Indira Gandhi supported um, the oil embargo uh, and she was able to get several uh, bilateral agreements with countries like Iran, countries like Iraq uh, to get oil. And I, and I discuss that in the book. But um, what I also discuss is that the 1973 um, oil, oil crisis became the stage, the uh, rhetorical stage on which the Department of Atomic Energy claimed that an underground nuclear explosion in Pokhran was necessary for oil. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, as, as I go into the arch- uh, as I went into the archives, I found that, um, you know, one of the first visits by uh, folks from BARC, the Bhava Atomic Re- uh, Research Center in Pokhran, was to say that they were engineers from the ONGC, uh, the Oil and Natural Gas Corporation, to looking for oil because of an oil price drop. Uh, <laughs> that's what they first told the villagers of, uh, of, of, of Ketalai, which is the closest human uh, habitation to Pokhran today, even today. Uh, so there is this in, there is this in, uh, integral relationship between the plowshare program which is spelled you know in the in the us way because the, it's a us program uh the plowshare program of underground nuclear explosions uh and um and that has its origins in oil crisis or perceived oil crisis and then i go to the 74 explosion where the 1973 oil sh- oil shock provided this kind of a uh, rhetorical stage on which the underground nuclear explosion was claimed as a plowshare uh, for the moment, at least.
0: Thank you. That was that's really interesting um, to hear about um, um, the explosion or the peaceful nuclear explosion, the circumstances leading up to it um, in May 1974, which is actually what I'm going to ask you about next. So uh, on May 18th, 1974, uh, the Indian government announced that it had conducted what it called a peaceful nuclear explosion. I think it's also called like Smiling Buddha. Um. Mm-hmm. What sort of nuclear test was this, and what was the global response to it? It's always sort of intrigued me that what 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 does it mean to have a peaceful nuclear explosion? So, could you just tell us a little more about this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this has been I mean, you know, the the PNE uh, of India's explosion of May 1974, and it has been debated and discussed you know, just just uh, for decades right and and interestingly uh on may 18 1974 uh the indian government conducted uh an underground nuclear explosion uh which it claimed was for peaceful purposes in other words it claimed it was an experiment uh, it was an experiment to see whether the government can conduct similar explosions to for civilian ends mm-hmm. civilian engineering ends like mining like oil exploration, which I just mentioned, um, and you know, just uh, changing course of rivers, etc. Um, so, th- so that's what the. So essentially, there is. Uh, th- that, so, so, there is no distinction between a nuclear weapon, and and a nuclear device um, that is considered to be. For for peaceful ends, it's really a it's question of how it is being justified, um, and what the what the stated uh, intent is. In terms of technology, it's the same. And uh, what is what is important for P and E's is that they they were a category of explosions that existed uh, in in the international organizations such as the IAEA, as countries can undertake such explosions for civilian ends. The only difference was that it was the superpowers. The United States was doing it. I just mentioned the Plowshare program. Um, there were several explosions that the U.S. undertook in places like uh, Colorado, New Mexico and, and, uh, and elsewhere uh, for civilian ends, including uh, a, a private public endeavor called gas buggy to to use nuclear explosions for what is considered fracking today. Uh, in other words, um, that a practice of nu- already countries having nuclear weapons, notably the two superpowers, of using nuclear devices for civilian ends existed before May 1974. What changed with May 1974 is that a country that had never conducted a nuclear weapon test, that is, India conducted an underground nuclear explosion and said, This is not a nuclear weapon. This is a PE or a peaceful nuclear explosion, just like the superpowers had done before 74. So that's what happened.
0: <laughs> that's really interesting. Uh, thank you. Uh, so a historical event that you discuss in your book, uh, which is usually elided and forgotten and much commentary about India in the 1970s, is India's absorption of Sikkim, uh, in, I think, in the mid, mid-1970s. Uh, so could you tell us more about these circumstances?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think I missed your uh, your second question about uh, Pokhran, and that is, you know, how did the world respond to it? So very quickly, I do have an entire chapter in, entirely on this, which is my chapter seven, Explosion and Fallout. But I'll quickly summarize is that um, the first country to which the Indira Gandhi government informed that they have conducted an underground nuclear explosion was the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they got a phone call. Um, and that's what my chapter begins with. Um, and the U.S. Embassy uh, in New Delhi got a phone call and they learned that India had conducted a nuclear explosion that morning. Um, the Indian policymakers at the, at the MEA, the Indian Ministry of External Affairs, were very surprised that the U.S. government's response was rather muted, that they didn't really Mm-hmm. Go about. <laughs> um, they they didn't seem that upset, and it's, it's so interesting. And this is why the Indian archives are so important because we could get a very different sense of how India is responding from Canadian or US archives. But what India did was like, they was very surprised that uh, that Kissinger isn't so upset, <laughs> um, and uh, that uh, had to do with you know the the Nixon administration at the time had a lot on its plate, and that is Watergate, mm-hmm. but. Uh, from the perspective of the U.S. government, India's underground nuclear explosion did matter in the sense that was going to set a poor example for other countries who might do something similar uh, to the United States. This was going to be um, uh, very difficult to attain what was called non-proliferation, meaning uh, you know, a blanket policy that uh, new, new countries or countries should not get nuclear weapons. Like That's the bottom line. And so the u s response was to develop institutions like the Nuclear Suppliers Group, mm-hmm. uh, which really came out of India's nuclear explosion um, that so on the face of it, the official response of the United States was muted. Uh, but on the side, the u s policymakers became very busy uh, trying to control. The marketplace that had opened uh, with Eisenhower and trying to control that through export control mechanisms, which is what the Nuclear Suppliers Group is. Um, Canada was very, very upset because uh, Canadian supplied. heavy water reactor that produced heavy water uh, sorry that produced plutonium was used in the device that uh, that India tested and um, there were negotiations for several years and in 76 Canada pulled out uh, so uh, that's that essentially was what happened in terms of a global response uh, that uh, there was a new institution created which was the nuclear mm-hmm. suppliers group and Canada uh, or Um, originally being interested in negotiating and finding a solution, but then failing to, and therefore pulling out. And and this is also a time when France also starts renegotiating all its agreements with with India as a response to its nuclear explosion. But India stays uh, firm on its official position that it was an underground nuclear explosion. Um, It was an experiment to see if India could undertake similar explosions for civilian ends, and the world is um, not really uh, understanding what it has done and thinking uh, wrongly that it's a it's, it's a nuclear weapon and your <laughs> second question about sikkim sorry uh, Sh- if you have a follow up please go oh, on no no no
0: please go ahead yes i was just about to ask you about sikkim yes
1: <laughs> yes uh yeah so the the, the annexation of sikkim is uh, is is really interesting and important and it's it's a very slow annexation. It's uh, you know seventy three to seventy five. That's that's really the timeline, uh, but I, I I discuss Sikkim uh, quite a lot in the book because I find that uh, that that um, th- th- that 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 territory is really important to Indian policymakers. Mm-hmm. You know, from Nehru all the way till the end of my book. Where you know, back I end with Indira Gandhi. I, I end just before her assassination, uh, and Sikkim is is a really important um piece of land for india and i think and i would direct the readers uh if they are interested in the early history about you know uh it, about independence and 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 uh, how uh, what what that meant for the status of sikkim i i recommend uh, swati chawla uh in delhi she just uh, i think defended her dissertation and she's looking at um you know India's relationship with places like Bhutan, Sikkim, um, and what that meant for uh, post-colonial territorial sovereignty. Um, The reason Sikkim is important uh, in in this time period is that uh, when we think about Pokhran, and I just described, you know, what the nuclear explosion technically was, uh, what that politically meant, what the official U.S. response was, and what India's official position was. Uh, and that all of that is accurate. It's also our uh, you know, evidence based. But when we pay closer attention to what else is going on in India, we find that um, Sikkim and Pokhran really needs to be analyzed together. Mm-hmm. And then it, things make a lot more sense. Um, and so I do that in terms of making sense of um, the explosion in Pokhran. With the annexation of Sikkim. And I find that in 1973, such an interesting year, uh, that year there was going to be elections in Sikkim. Uh, that year the excavation begins in Pokhran. And there are several stumbling blocks, uh, you know, just uh, stumbling blocks in the sense that you know, they try to dig the shaft uh, because it's an underground nuclear explosion, you have to dig the shaft, to put the device, and then there are some difficulties, like there is an aquifer that they hit. And I think Raj Chengapa has done an excellent job just describing um, the, 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 the complexity and the contingencies in Pokhran, even after Indira Gandhi took the decision to undertake the nuclear explosion. And so I, I, I compare what that meant for the timeline of Sikkim's election. And this was entirely at the discretion of the Indira Gandhi government. And I find that it's it's we can we can make sense of uh, Sikkim's election timeline and Pokhran explosion very clearly. Uh, Indira Gandhi also decides. The two together, she decides that India to undertake a nuclear explosion, and she also discusses what to do about the Chokyal with RAW. She basically assigns different responsibilities to different agencies. So the DAE and BARK take care of RAW, uh, uh, take care of Pokhran, and RAW takes care of Sikkim. So I I I will I don't want to give away everything <laughs> to our listeners, but I think uh, I, I think there is a lot to be learned in terms of. Um, what Bokran meant from the point of view of intramestic geopolitical threats and things that absolutely cannot be made sense of without India's absorption of Sikkim
0: thank you for sharing all of that i again definitely see the significance of uh, india's absorption of sikkim in relation to your argument about securing borderlands or india's desire to secure borderlands the intermestic the concept of the intermestic um, that you discuss and it's also really fascinating to, fascinating to hear about uh, the global response uh to the Pokhran a new peaceful nuclear explosion and the creation of these bodies, like the nuclear suppliers group and so on, uh, which later on at, India i think tries to get uh, approval for from it uh, during the uh, nuclear deal with the u s in two thousand and eight so that that 's really interesting to hear about all of that. So in May 1998, India conducted five nuclear tests confirming India c- c- confirming its status as a, a nuclear weapons state. Um, and this was, of course, followed in, I think, just a few weeks uh, by Pakistan's own nuclear tests, which confirmed this dangerous geopolitical rivalry, a nuclear rivalry now between uh, India and Pakistan on the Indian subcontinent. Um, so, could you tell us a little more about this? What are the and what are the legacies of India's nuclear program? Um, and and related to that, um, what is India's status within the contemporary global nuclear order?
1: Yeah, uh, I think that's a, that's a truly excellent question to, uh, to conclude our conversation with. Um, as I started this this interview, I, I shared with you and and the listeners that um, the received wisdom that we have is um it's only with 1998 that india became a nuclear weapon state because india conducted five nuclear tests and called them nuclear weapons test, right? Nobody said those were peaceful. Um, And what that meant for India's status, uh, not just that, Pakistan also conducted six nuclear tests. So we have 11 nuclear tests, um, underground nuclear tests in in South Asia in one month. It's just, uh, yeah, it's incredible to think about, right? We we lived through that. I think I was probably um, maybe a teenager at the time, but it's, you know, fascinating to think about as an adult. Um, So, I, I find that, uh, frankly, the main 1974 um, explosion and the five nuclear tests were, were not that different in the sense that they were all underground. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, what that meant was that, you know, they, they were very there the were difference was really rhetorical justification that the Indira Gandhi government said this was peaceful and the Vajpayee government said we are now a nuclear weapon, ta- uh, weapon state. But soon after the 1998 test, there was this uh, now very famous um, foreign affairs article thing against nuclear apartheid by Jaswant Singh. And um, I read that with my students uh, when we discussed this, uh, you know, this, this subject is that it's so similar to um, India's representative, V.C. Trivedi in Geneva in the 1960s, when he disagreed and disapproved of what became the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, he said that India would cannot be part of a nuclear non-proliferation treaty that was going to instill atomic apartheid. I, th- those were his words. And then 1998, uh, the justification by by government was against nuclear apartheid, which is a foreign affairs piece that Jaswant Singh wrote. Um, a few years before that, when India had refused to be part of the comprehensive test ban treaty, Uh, India's representative, uh, I had the good fortune of meeting her before she passed away a a few years ago, uh, Arundhati Ghosh. And her speech is, again, reminds us once again that India would like to take an official and strong position against this unequal global nuclear order. And so when we make sense of, on on the external side of things, like keeping the intramestic out, keeping the 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 duality out. I think a very important part. But in terms of, you know, global nuclear order, which is what your question is about, you find that there is more continuity. Mm -hmm. There is this more continuity with a set of milestones um, that um, that India's decision to not sign the NPT and then India's nuclear explosion in 74 decision not to be part of the CTBT extension of the NPT as in being an indefinite treaty, so a permanent characteristic of the nuclear program. Um, and then 2008 is once again very similar. The U.S.-India nuclear deal uh, was uh, this the this, this civil nuclear agreement that meant that India would allow uh, verification and safeguards of its civilian reactors, which means a duality, India will have to give up in return for civilian nuclear trade. And they got a waiver, like India got a waiver from the nuclear suppliers group, but then India did not separate everything. (laughs) Uh, It's not that, you know, India only allowed certain reactors to be open to verification and others were kept aside. Uh, So what I'm trying to say is, you know, the arguments I have made from the 1940s to the 1980s, I would say, uh, hold when we look at India's nuclear program and the choices the policymakers make today is that there is more continuity. Uh, it's not like a different government came to power and things changed. Uh, there were, you know, 1998, yeah, more nuclear tests. But the the rhetoric, the justification, it's it's so similar across the board. It's, it's truly fascinating.
0: Thank you. That was really uh, insightful and fascinating to hear. Um, and it was so interesting to hear about your book uh, today. So thank you so much, J- Joyata, for taking so much time from your busy schedule to talk with me today. Um, so before we end, could you tell us what you are working on now or what you are working on next?
1: Yeah, I'm currently working on two book projects at different levels of completion. Uh, my the one that is you know exciting me uh, a lot is uh, I'm working on this um, this history of uh, of the idea and practice of partitions um, from South Asia to the world. So I'm interested how how the idea of of, uh, of, of Partition really came out of South Asia through British colonial administration, mm-hmm. Lord Curzon, essentially, and, and how that idea um, first went to Ireland and then to the League of Nations mm-hmm. in Geneva and then spread across the world to the point that the practice and idea of partition today is not considered um, a problem or a strange um uh, strange instrument of statecraft, but is, you know, a very acceptable solution to solve protracted political violence. Obviously, as somebody has grown up in India, I don't think it's a solution in any way. Uh, but I'm interested in examining how did we get here today in the 21st century, where we see protracted political violence in a certain part of the world, wherever it is, uh, and we think, hmm, Practition may just be a good idea. Like, how did we get here? Uh, And so that's what I'm working on right now.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Joyita. That sounds really fascinating. And I look forward to reading your work in the future. Thank you. Uh, so this was an interview with uh, Professor Joyita Sarkar about her book, Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War, which was published uh, by Cornell University Press in 2022. Uh, so, so thank you, Joyita.
1: Thank you so much, Shatran Jai. It was a delight to be on the podcast with you. Thank you.